turn that passage to that passage that uh, Hugh read to us, uh, Philemon. And as we do, let's pray together. Let's pray and ask for God's help. And just a simple prayer from the psalmist. Open our eyes, Heavenly Father, that we might see wonderful things in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, Psalm 133, which we uh, just sang, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I think that Psalm could be a kind of soundtrack to Philemon. And the more I've thought about it this week, Uh, And this little letter, it teaches us a big lesson this morning. It teaches us about the vital need for harmony, harmony between God's people, between uh, Christians. And as we look at this letter this morning, I want us to kind of get into the atmosphere of it and think about how it applies to us as St. Peter's today. And there's three things that I want us to see. And the first is the fellowship that is stressed. The fellowship that's stressed. If you look down at the letter, you'll see how it begins and ends. This is the kind of thing that we're often tempted to ignore, isn't it? And we want to rush past all the names and get to the meat of the letter. Or we come to the end and the names are there and we just kind of ignore them. But like bread in a sandwich or bookends on a shelf, these two little sections are really important. And like the opening or closing credits in a film, they introduce us to everyone involved, a whole cast of characters. So we have Paul Timothy, Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and then five more at the end, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. I think it's very easy for us to to forget that these were real people. These were real people with different stories, different personalities, different backgrounds. And look how they're described. They're called prisoner brother, beloved fellow worker, sister, fellow soldier, fellow prisoner, fellow workers. So the people that Paul mentions here, they have been bound together. They have got a history. They are partners. This is what happens when we become Christians. We are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, And that means we are united to one another. And what God has joined together, no one can separate. Christ is the head and the church is his body. I think that's such a a basic truth, but it's so important for us to remember, maybe especially in days like today, one of the marks of our society is what is often called expressive individualism. And this is the air we breathe. It is the water 
you and I swim in. We are constantly being told that life is best when lived as we please. Life is best when we're all on our own, when we're doing just what we think we should be doing. I'm not sure we quite realize just how much this impacts us. It can affect the way we view the whole Christian life. But we're not saved on our own. No, you and I, we are part of a fellowship. Now, I love uh, the Lord of the Rings so much that if I hear the word fellowship, uh, I can't uh, not think about Gandalf and co. I won't ruin uh, the story if you've never read it, but if you know the story, you'll know that the hobbits, the men, and all the rest, they had to help Frodo take the ring to Mount Doom. They had a common bond and a common goal. And in a lot of ways, that is a very good summary of what fellowship means common bond and a common goal. And I think one of the reasons we love stories uh, like that is that even though our culture is so individualistic, even though we struggle with that, we can't help longing for community, can we? It's what we were made for, as Andy uh, reminded us last week. Uh, Connected to that, I think in, in the beginning and end of this letter, we see that Christian ministry is not something done on our own. It's very easy for us to think that Paul was a kind of solo operator, the great missionary just traveling all over the place, doing his own thing, but his life was so relational. It was deeply connected with others. And Philemon... Philemon was like that too. He was a mature believer. He was a stable, generous, warm man. I think we see this if we look at verses 4 to 7. Just glance down at them. Paul has heard of his love for all the saints, verse 5. In fact, he's not just heard about this love. No, he's experienced it, verse 7. Philemon is a tidings of comfort and joy kind of person. He has refreshed the hearts of his fellow believers. Refreshed their hearts. I think that is a beautiful description. What a wonderful goal to aim for in life, to to be someone who refreshes the hearts of our brothers and sisters. Philemon was like that. He loved God, and he loved God's people. I think Psalm 16, verse 3 would have probably been one of his favorite verses. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Friends, that's the kind of attitude that develops in us by God's Spirit when we begin to understand God's grace. And the word refreshed, that is the same word that Jesus uses at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Philemon was a man who had experienced that, that rest, that refreshment. And how he'd been treated by Jesus 
was seen in the way he treated his fellow believers. Friends, this is the fellowship, this is the union that the gospel creates. This was Philemon's life. This was how he lived. He's a great example to us this morning. He was a wonderful encouragement to Paul. But there was a problem. There was a problem. That takes me to my second point today. The friction that's healed. We've seen that the fellowship that's stressed. Now, the friction that's healed. I think this uh, little letter would make a great film. You could probably have a great film about this story, couldn't you? And in every film or story, there is always some kind of plot tension that needs to be resolved. And as we look at Philemon, it's quite tricky to know exactly what had happened. And uh, the commentators, they love to speculate, spill lots of ink, uh, trying to uh, establish that. But if we look at the, the passage, we can see some of the details and see what's certain. Philemon had a slave, a bondservant. And his name was Onesimus. Now, maybe we hear that uh, kind of idea. We have ethical questions about that. Maybe we uh, uh, wonder about that. We can talk about that at the end, if you like. But it's important to stress that, that slavery in the Roman Empire was different to the slavery we often think about in the U.S. in the 18th and 19th centuries. Many slaves were treated harshly, but a very big percentage of the population were slaves. Some did very important work. Others became valued members of the household, and sometimes they could buy their freedom. And in this letter, Paul doesn't try to, to solve the whole issue of slavery. Instead, he deals with a specific issue, two people. Because Philemon and Onesimus, they had been parted, verse 15. Onesimus was now with Paul. But verse 18 seems to indicate he'd harmed Philemon. Maybe he ran away. Uh, maybe he stole some money. There's kind of hints of that in the text. We don't know. But while he's away, he's met Paul. Paul calls him his child, verse 10. He says he's become his father in prison. He calls him Philemon's brother. So Onesimus is now a believer. Now, what words would you use to describe this situation? Maybe difficult, delicate, raw, that kind of thing. I think they'd be good choices. It's tricky. And if you add in the master-slave relationship, it's even more complicated. But into this situation steps Paul, the peacemaker, and he wants to bring reconciliation and healing. And in the body of the letter, in verses 8 to 22, he is trying to persuade Philemon to remember the gospel and accept Onesimus back. Now, he does this in lots of different ways. This is such a skillfully written letter. Notice first the emotive language Paul uses in verse 9. He says, 
His apostolic authority means he could command Philemon to do this, but he doesn't want to. Instead, for love's sake, for love's sake, he appeals to him. In verse 12, he describes Onesimus as his very heart. And it's not just what he says, it's how he says it. As one writer puts it, there's a kind of playful feel to this letter. You see, just look at verse 11. Onesimus means useful, and you might have a a footnote in your Bible to show that. Um, But Paul says he used to be useless, but now, drumroll please, he is useful. There's a bit of humor here. Not only that, as as many people have noted, in Greek, the words useful and useless, they sound very similar to the word for Christ. So Paul's pun, he is reminding Philemon of the change that has taken place in Onesimus' life. And he's reminding him of the one who made it all possible. This is not the main point. But I think there's maybe a little application for us here. Paul is not afraid to be creative as he communicates the truth. He's not afraid of a bit of humor, uh, even when he's saying something serious. And humor can be a great way to diffuse an argument, can't it? It can change the tone. It can lighten the mood. And Paul has clearly thought very carefully about this. I think he must have had a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face as he wrote verse 11. So Paul is warm. Paul uses humor. But he also makes Philemon think. He makes Philemon think. Just look at verse 15. He speculates. He says... Maybe the reason he was parted from you in God's providence was so that you could have him back forever. Mark Menel, one of the the commentators I read uh, this week, he points out that under Roman law, Onesimus would have been liable to the harshest treatment. But Paul is saying things have changed. He's not just a slave now. He's your brother. You need to think about that, Philemon. How you respond to him now, that will say a lot about your understanding of God's grace. It will say a lot to the community he comes back to. Will you welcome him or will you reject him? Will you celebrate what God has done in his life or will you get grumpy at God's grace to him? And I think there are real parallels here with Luke 15. Paul is the father, the old man. Onesimus is the prodigal who's run away. And Philemon is the elder brother. And like the father in that story, he longs for harmony He's bound himself to Onesimus. I'd be glad to keep him here with me, verse 13. 
If you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you, I'll pay. So Paul is warm. Paul uses humor. He makes him think. But he is also very bold, isn't he? See, look at verse 21. He's, he's saying, I know you, Philemon. I know what you're like. I know you're going to do this. And he's so confident that he's already planning to visit. And I think reconciliation, it must have happened, mustn't it, between these two men? Or we wouldn't have this letter. Now, how can we apply this to us? Well, maybe today you can be uh, like Paul. You can help bring two people back together. Or maybe today there is someone that God is uh, nudging you towards, someone you need to be reconciled with. Maybe today there's someone that you need to send a text or a card or an email to. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you are keeping at kind of arm's length? Or is there someone from a, a different background or nationality to you that you're doing the same to? Friends, remember the gospel. Remember God's grace. Remember how Christ treated you. And remember that he died for them too. And ask for God's help to, to reach out to them. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, take the initiative. If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Be reconciled. Then offer your gift. Now Paul was someone who had experienced this grace, this reconciliation in his own life. If you remember his conversion, you'll know that the first words that were spoken to him by another Christian were brother Saul. This man who had persecuted believers heard from one of them those wonderful words, brother Saul. I think they must be one, some of the most moving words in the whole Bible. And Paul hadn't kept this to himself. In verse 24, he mentions Mark. And I was reminded this week that Mark was somebody who Paul had been, we might say, out of relationship with. You can see that if you read uh, the end of Acts 15 later. But they were reconciled. So Paul isn't calling Philemon to do something he's not done himself. One of the ways that the early church uh, made such an impression on the first century world was that Christians loved each other like this. They treated one another as equals. And this was so shocking because the Roman Empire was so hierarchical. Everyone knew their place. But the gospel challenged that culture at precisely that point. Christians discovered that they were all one in Christ Jesus, all equal at the foot of the cross. There was neither Jew nor Greek, 
male nor female, slave nor free. And the same is true today. Jesus has not changed. Jesus still brings people together from completely different backgrounds. So let's keep keep praying that our love for one another will grow. Let's seek peace and harmony and unity here. And in a city full of lost and lonely people, let's never underestimate the witness that can be. Francis Schaeffer, he said that the love that Christians have for one another is what he called the final apologetic. Because when a person has had all their questions answered, it is often observing that kind of love, that kind of change, which finally persuades them. Let's pray that here at St. Peter's we will be, continue to be, that kind of fellowship. So we've seen the fellowship that's stressed. We've seen uh, the friction that's healed. Lastly, let's uh, notice the future that's previewed. The future that's previewed. What is happening in this little letter is like a trailer for something greater. The reconciliation we see beginning here is a preview of a greater reconciliation. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians and Philemon, they're often uh, paired together. Philemon is a kind of P.S., if you like, to Colossians. There's lots of connections between the two letters, lots of different, lots of names that are mentioned in both. But look at Colossians 1 and verse 19. Paul has just been speaking about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who made all things, verse 16. He is the head of the church, verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent. Now look with me at verse 19. For in him, Paul writes, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now notice uh, the extent of the reconciliation here. Christ is the Lord of creation and his work of reconciliation, it extends to all things. And notice how it comes about through the cross at the end of verse 20, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what is being promised here is a day of restoration beyond anything we can imagine. It is the fall, the flood, and Babel all undone. It is better than all our attempts at world peace. Just listen to how one commentator describes it. Through the work of Christ on the cross, 
God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. God's work in Christ has in view a reclamation of the entire universe, tainted as it is by human sin. The peace that God seeks is a peace that not only applies to humans in their relationship to God, but also in their relationship with one another and their relationship with the natural world. You see, when Adam fell, the ripples ran all the way through creation, all the way through the whole of the universe. But Christ has come to bring his blessing far as that curse is found. And the Hebrew word for this is shalom. Will would tell us what it means. It means completeness or wholeness or everything as it should be-ness. And that is the future that awaits us. Christ is Lord of the cosmos. And one day that will be clear for everyone, the whole of creation, to see. So do you see how this elevates our relationships? It means that all our attempts to reconcile with one another, all the bridges that we build with other people, they are no small thing. Instead, they are, they are signs that we are living in light of that reality, beginning beginning to get in line with what's coming. On September the 3rd, 1939, Neville Chamberlain, he addressed the British people from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street, and he told them that Britain was at war. And before we came to Christ, a state of war existed between God and us. But he has paid the penalty for our sin in Christ. All we have to do today is ask him for forgiveness. And maybe today God is calling you to do so. But we can only be reconciled to one another because we've been reconciled to him. We can only be reconciled to one another because we've been reconciled to him. And one day, all things will be reconciled to him too. On that cross, Jesus was bound like a slave. On that cross, Jesus died for those who had wronged him. And on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And now he calls us his brothers, his sisters. So let's ask now for his help to dwell in unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the gospel you change us 
from being your enemies to being your friends. And not even that, Heavenly Father, you take us from enemy to friend to family. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ today. We thank you that he has made all of that possible. And we pray for a growing love for our brothers and sisters here at St. Peter's and beyond. We thank you for this church family. And we pray that you'd help us to be those who refresh the hearts of our brothers and sisters as we have our hearts refreshed by you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.